Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Hey there, I've got an interesting faith story for you here today about Keegan Chandler, who grew up as a Bible-believing Christian in Texas. His grandfather, Pat E. Harrell, was a leader within the Church of Christ, a Harvard grad, and very instrumental in teaching at several colleges and the founder of their Restoration Quarterly publication. As a result of his grandparents and his parents' passion for God, Chandler grew up in a family steeped in Bible study and theological reflection. One day, the Mormons came knocking, and Chandler, the consummate apologist and champion of orthodoxy, licked his lips at the chance to set them straight. He rolled up his sleeves, and he went out to engage in conversation. But when one of the missionaries asked him, Well, who do you say that Jesus is? Strangely enough, this question caught him off guard. The young man wasn't asking, who do your parents say Jesus is? Who do, what does your pastor say? Or who do the seminaries say that Jesus is? But who do you say that Jesus is? The intensely personal nature of this question started Chandler on a quest to firm up his orthodox answer, which, interestingly enough, led to a complete reconsideration of his beliefs about God, Jesus, and the Spirit. Over the course of several years, he came to see the Bible from a more Hebrew perspective. After intense Bible study and a thorough investigation into church history, he discovered the God of Jesus. Here now is Interview 8, A Restorationist Discovers the God of Jesus. Keegan Chandler, welcome to Restitutio. I'm so glad you could join me today. Thank you for having me, Sean. I am a very big fan of your work, and I'm very excited to be here. I so enjoyed meeting you at this past theological conference and hearing your story, your faith story, and I just wanted to get a chance to hear a little bit more in depth about where you come from, what's your background. Did you grow up as a Christian, for example? Yes. Yes, I did. And it was a pleasure meeting you at the conference as well. It's very exciting to have uh, such a great place where we can get together with truth seekers from all over. But I'll start by saying that my background in Christianity is probably, in general, reflective of the lasting effect that Christian dogma has had on the Christian mind and, and the Christian way of life. And, and I'll get into that in a minute. But first, where did I come from? The story of my own family's relationship with Christianity is one very deeply rooted in Bible study and in writing about the Bible and in very, very serious participation in church. And all that probably started with my grandfather. His name was Pat E. Harrell, and he was a Harvard grad and a prominent leader in the Restoration Movement. So that's um, the Church, church of Christ. Christ. Mm -hmm. And he was actually chair of uh, the Bible department at Northeastern and the University of Texas at Austin, uh, which is where my family is all from. We're the weird people who moved away to Houston. Um, he also founded the Restoration Quarterly, which is a Church of Christ journal. It's still in publication today. So needless to say, there was already in my family an interest in writing and in teaching about the Bible that I believe was pretty obviously passed on to my parents. 
And my parents to this day are very passionate, very, very good Bible students and Bible teachers. And so at a very young age, they taught me how to read the Bible. They instilled this great passion uh, for God and me. And I credit them and their guidance for everything because they not only taught me to love the Bible, but just as importantly, they they very early on demonstrated what I see as a courage uh, to stand up for the truth of the Bible in the face of tradition. And I believe that's absolutely helped set me on the track that I'm on now. Because after teaching in the Churches of Christ for many years, my parents' own biblical studies eventually led them in to some conflict with a few of their denomination's positions. And, you know, that was no simple thing to break away from the family's traditions. Now, how old were you when that was going on? Very, very young, uh, maybe three or four years old. Okay, so that you weren't really part of that situation. No, no. I saw the effects of that transition uh, my whole life. And I saw that the, the call of the Bible was just a very strong one on my parents. So they, they had quite uh, courageously, I think, had led us out of that place and into a place where we really had to depend on God to lead us to where we needed to be. So I spent the rest of my childhood, my teenage and uh, high school years attending churches and various other Protestant movements. I mean, you name it, we went there, the Nazarenes the Southern Baptists, various uh, charismatic churches. My parents were always very involved. We were always invited to hold teaching positions, always did quite well. I think my parents have probably held just about every office in a church besides head pastor. And wow. I eventually myself came to teach classes at one of the larger Baptist churches here in Houston. And that's really where I myself began to kind of cut my teeth on teaching and real Bible study. As far as having like a conversion experience, you know, a single point in time where everything just switched on for me, you know, I remember going to church camp and saying some some prayers. It was very meaningful for me at that time as a kid, but I don't really remember too much of that. Not the details, at least. It was sort of this fog. It was this fog that, that God was kind of always dwelling in, you know. But um, I was very ex- uh, passionate about my faith. I was really that weird kid at school that wouldn't stop bringing up the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> I think if people from high school were to were you know asked about me, they would probably or hopefully remember something like that. So I was very passionate, but I I had a very dogmatic outlook. I think I was the kind of person that Paul would say, "There's someone with zeal, with it, but without knowledge." The most interesting thing, which I think is very typical of most evangelicals or Protestants, and you know, you may have some experience like this as well, is that I was trained as a non-Catholic to understand that, well, my Christianity wasn't shackled by unscriptural dogma. My Christianity was it was free to encounter the biblical evidence. You know, my faith was molded by or even exclusively defined by, quote, the Bible, whatever that means. And I had just assumed that my Protestant ancestors had done their jobs. Whatever I was receiving from these Bible-based movements was just purely biblical. But now I see that there's this sort of strange phenomenon that evangelicals suffer today, something that I've heard some people call the the Protestant burden. I don't know if you've heard of that or not. Protestant what? The Protestant burden. Oh, okay. And that's 
a tendency to read your own doctrines back into the Bible right. because of that principle of sola scriptura, right? We all love sola scriptura, um, but it only works if you actually do it. <laughs> right. Because as Protestants, we don't like it when our doctrines aren't in the Bible. The Catholics, they have the Pope to declare by divine fiat that something is true, but we don't have that. We we have to rely on what is in the Bible and only what's in the Bible. And if there's a particular tradition, a particular historical doctrine that we happen to like, that we don't, you know, we're not really ready to do away with quite yet, then it's very easy to locate support for it in the Bible, to start to push texts in certain directions, um, even to manufacture it if we have to. And I, it was quite the experience, to say the least, when I came to realize that I had, in fact, been participating in that. It's kind of an interesting way to put it. There is definitely a sola scriptura mentality among Protestants. Of course, that varies depending on what denomination you're participating in. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I came across that same idea that you're mentioning there in a book by Jason David Badoon. I don't know if you ever read his book, Truth and yes. Translation. Yes. Yes. Yeah, he has a great little section there on how there is this pressure for Protestants to find their doctrine in Scripture that Catholics don't have to really worry about because they recognize that church councils have authority at the same level as the Scripture, and also the, the Pope's declarations from the chair. So That's exactly right. Tim's book is uh, where I probably where I first heard that, that Protestant burden, and I think that that's a really important point that we need to bring up to people. So many, so many uh, evangelical traditions just assume that whatever they've got is purely biblical and they don't really understand that it came from that very same Catholic world that they're that they're criticizing. For me, I really see my own journey as a sort of rediscovery of the Bible that I thought I knew. The Bible I had defended so passionately growing up. And to be honest, what had really motivated that for me was a new discovery of church history. It was that history, which at first was pretty damaging to my, my own belief, but it ultimately made that Bible readable and applicable to my life in a way that I never imagined possible. Yeah. How would you classify yourself before you started to change some of this mentality that you had? Would you classify yourself as a confident evangelical apologist? Or, I mean, how old are we talking here? I was still a Trinitarian after I graduated college in 2011. I thought that all real Christians were Trinitarians, that this was just what the true body of Christ had always believed from the beginning. That's what I'd been told. And in the various Christian circles that I'd moved in, the only ones that ever had a problem with the Trinity were Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. You had to belong in some kind of cult if you took any issue with it whatsoever, right? If you had any questions. Um, so I was a Trinitarian, an evangelical Trinitarian, uh, but really, I mean, what was the doctrine of the Trinity for me all those years growing up? What What is the doctrine of the Trinity today? And, and this is the one thing that I believe is really probably pretty reflective of many of your listeners' experience. I can tell you that in all the settings that I've been in, there was never very much meaningful talk of the Trinity. To nearly all evangelicals, or most, I would say, the doctrine of the Trinity has been reduced to the divinity of Jesus, whatever that means. And, and that was certainly the case for me. 
for us, whatever the Trinity is, it's just a mystery. It's some holy, untouchable, ineffable thing that can't or shouldn't be questioned, much less understood. And I was in that camp, certainly. I remember holding to the Logos Christology. Um, and as I as I grew up and into college, I consciously began holding the Chalcedonian definition that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And that didn't make much sense to me, but it didn't really have to. I mean, after all, it was true, and it was right. true because it was it was in the Bible, right? Right. <laughs> or so well, I was told. <laughs> I so don't know. I You're told. not going to find some of those formulas in the Bible that we find in Chalcedon. Right, but you kind of get by just believing that the building blocks are there. The basis is, is there. So it, it's a biblically-based doctrine, right. and that can help you get— along well enough to where you don't feel like you have to stop and pay attention to some of these really potentially damaging problems. You remind me of movies that say based on a true story, right? Where they could change <laughs> basically anything they want, just so long as the person is somewhat similar to the original. And, you know, I, I remember I was watching um, 12 Years a Slave. Have you heard of that one? Yes. And in the movie version of it, he only had two kids. And in the book version that he wrote himself, the autobiography, he had three kids. It's like, well, who was this Hollywood person that said, all right, well, let's just get rid of one of his kids. It'll play better. You know, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like, much more cinematic that way, I guess. Yeah. And so I guess my comparison to that with these later theological accretions is that they're saying, well, this is based on the Bible. Well, to be based mm -hmm. on the Bible and explicitly taught in the Bible are still two very different things. That's right. That's exactly right. Take us forward for your own journey here. What got you to start questioning this? I mean, you're already in college. You've been steeped in the scriptures from an early age. You've sort of inherited in your DNA a restorationist mindset that's always looking to go back. What do the early Christians believe? We want to base our ideas on the Bible, not on tradition. So what was the first thing that got you even thinking about there being a problem? It was around the time when I got married that I became very interested in Mormonism. Now, what I mean by that is that I was very interested in learning about Mormonism so I could just prove them wrong. <laughs> I loved debating the Mormons. They're wonderful, gentle people. I like them very much. But it became a sort of mission of sorts for me to engage them to kind of get on my horse and sally forth to meet them. And I wanted to turn them back to the, the Orthodox triune God, to the uncreated Jesus, uh, to the, the God-man of Orthodoxy. And it was at my son's, my first son's baby shower that things unexpectedly began to change because uh, there we were having the shower and some Mormons came to the door and everybody knew that I was the guy to to have uh, you know to go talk to them so they said hey you know go get them <laughs> so i sick them boy yeah sick them so i rolled up my sleeves and i went out there and i began you know challenging everything they were saying and, and just knocking it down and feeling really great about myself and at one point one of them just kind of frustrated said well who do you say that jesus is and it kind of caught me off guard i, I didn't know why at first i knew why later but it was, that's that very intensely personal question that Jesus is asking all of us. Who do you say that I am? Not your pastor, not your seminary, not your grandmother. Who, who do you say that I am? 
And so I gave my very good Trinitarian evangelical answer. I said, well, he's God, of course. And they were very uh, defeated. You know, they said, well, you obviously know a lot more about all this than us, and we're going to have to go back and study. And they went away. But that question never went away from me. Now, I'd, I'd had dozens of interactions like this, Sean, but something caused me to want to go back, to go back and investigate. I wanted to get more support for what I already believed, for what I had taught so many people. And I think it's very important to know that I did not set out to challenge the Trinity. I did not set out to challenge orthodoxy at all. I wanted to support it. I was only looking for more fuel for the very important, very sacred to me interpretations, which I'd always preached and argued. But what I found was very shocking. It actually disturbed me at first. I had always known that the word Trinity wasn't in the Bible, but I had assumed that the doctrine was there somehow, the building blocks, right, the basis for it. And after all, I was a Protestant. I, I just didn't have core beliefs that weren't found in the Bible. Right. But as I was looking for arguments to support the doctrine of the Trinity online, I also very quickly started encountering some different viewpoints. I found the work of Spirit and Truth Fellowship, of Restoration Fellowship, and the great work of Sir Anthony Buzzard. I found some of your own videos too, Sean. One particular video was a really great starting point for me, a presentation that you did called Five Major Problems of the Trinity. Yep, yep. And I was shocked because, well, first of all, yes, there were indeed problems, and some at a very, very fundamental level. And secondly, these people weren't cultists. I mean, uh, you're not a cultist, are you, Sean? Not that I know of. <laughs> but, but really, they weren't Mormons or JWs or anything like that. They were just Christians who took the Bible seriously, and they were very sure that there were, from a biblical perspective, from a historical perspective, some very serious problems with the Trinity dogma, uh, as you yourself were pointing out. So this was all a bit disturbing to me. And I, I, for months, I just kept falling back on a string of passages in the Gospel of John, a couple of challenging verses in Paul. And then I started thinking, well, maybe I'm even reading those incorrectly. Where does the preponderance of evidence lie? Well, let me pause you there. It's very unusual for somebody looking for ammunition to support their belief in the Trinity so that you can defeat Mormons and other alleged uh, cult-type people. It's very rare that such a person would even watch a video like the Five Major Problems with the Trinity. Like, why were you even watching that? That's not helping you. That's calling into question your beliefs. I think probably for the first time in my theological life, I was trying to be open-minded. I was trying to be honest. It was that question, that who do you say that I am? I felt Jesus asking asking me that question, and I wanted to give an honest answer, an answer that I had come to, not that I had just heard or parroted from somebody else. And so I, I remember sitting in uh, my apartment at that time at the computer and just praying, you know, God, whatever the, whatever the truth is, that's what I want. Uh, if the truth is that Jesus is God, then I will love that and continue to defend that for the rest of my life. But if right. the truth is something else, then God, please give me the strength to go through with that no matter what the consequences are. And 
Sean, I think when we take that kind of attitude with God, then he is just ready to open the floodgates for you. Amen. Yeah. I call that the Berean mindset. Uh-huh. Testing everything. That's right. right. To see if it's really true against the scripture, which in a sense you, you had been trained to think that way anyhow, but you just had never applied it to this area of your beliefs before. That's exactly right. And I credit my parents for starting me down that kind of uh, that kind of path. And so I found myself getting kind of deadlocked. I thought, well, we can go back and forth and we can argue about these proof texts. We can say, well, this verse doesn't just doesn't really mean that to me. And that's sometimes where our conversations get deadlocked. And it was certainly that way in my own internal discussion. So the the turning point for me was when I decided to take my investigation in a different route. And that was church history. Early Christian doctrine, church history was not part of my Christian upbringing. I know it's not for so many people. Some traditions like Greek Orthodoxy and even Catholicism may find history important. But for the average American evangelical, it's all just a big muddle. I mean, as a Protestant, I I guess I was thinking, well, who cares what Saint so-and-so said? Why don't you just pick up your King James Bible and open it and read right there that Jesus is God Almighty right on the page? But I think that the lack of emphasis on church history in evangelical circles, it may not be by accident. If it's not an accident, I think that's because history is one of the most dangerous battlegrounds for orthodoxy, for the orthodox interpretation of the New Testament. I tell you, I remember my uh, church history professor at Boston University when I was in seminary there. He was doing all of church history in one semester. So 20 centuries, one semester, it was <laughs> just like a sprint. And the whole his whole philosophy was, well, this way people will make connections over centuries that they wouldn't make if they went slowly through mm. each period. But anyhow, he got to the lecture on the 4th century and the Trinitarian controversy, and this guy was a very conservative guy, which is kind of ironic because the school I went to was very liberal. But the, my church history professor there, at least this one, was very conservative from a Lutheran background. And he, of course, strongly believed in the Trinity. But this whole describing of the battles that took place in the fourth century visibly disturbed him as he just marched his way through the different events that happened in the Nicene Council and following you could see he was getting flustered, he was starting to rush, he was starting to feel like, man, I just need to get through this. I hate. Mm. He, I think he even said at one point, I hate this lecture. I, you know, <laughs> like, I, I don't like talking about this. And, of course, nobody in the room thinks to themselves, well, hmm, maybe the conclusion they arrived at at the end of this process is something we should question. Nobody says that. They're just like, yeah, that was awkward, but right. now we have the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed and the Chalcedonian Confession, and God bless it, we're all okay now. You know? Right. <laughs> right, and that just wasn't sitting well with me. I looked into this, and I had a problem. I started having a problem with how everything had just been covered over. So I started asking myself this one question, Sean. It was this single question that really dominated my mind at that time. Who was the first Orthodox Trinitarian? Right. Was it Paul? Was it John the Baptist? Was it Jesus? That might be important. If we start with the earliest Christian community and we look to answer that question, 
that search is going to start taking us further and further forward into history than most Christians are going to be comfortable with. So I started considering this slow, incredible evolution and all the controversies that you were describing that we encounter when we consider the development of Orthodox Trinitarianism. And there was a development, a massive one. And I started to discern that a great deal had been hidden from me, deliberately or not, I think much of it is deliberate, about where and how we got some of our most allegedly important Christian doctrines. I ultimately found that the thought of the earliest Jewish disciples of Jesus, the thought of Jesus himself, well, it contrasted severely with that of the later church fathers. That study that I did, which is a very difficult, at times even very frightening study, uh, it eventually led me to believe that the Bible that I had always loved, the Bible that my parents had raised me to love, well, it had always designated the Father as the only one who is true God, and Jesus Christ as his human son, that, that Jesus himself has a God, and that ultimately the God of Jesus is not the Trinity. That Jesus was and is a human being like me who loved God with all of his heart. This is a very simple but nowadays very startling biblical truth which changed my life in very, very sudden and dramatic ways. And it's still changing me now, Sean, and I think it's uh, yet to change the world again. Yeah. So when you were going through this process, were you pretty much isolated, or were you talking to your wife or your parents or other friends about this, or were you afraid to even bring it up because this kind of investigation can be really scary? It can be scary, and I was isolated at first. Soon I began to talk to another coworker about it who had had some similar questions, but ultimately, yes, I finally got the courage to bring this up with my wife. And my initial discussion with my wife was terrible, and it was all my fault. (laughs) She'll tell you that. She'll very happily tell you that. We had just had our first baby, and as you know, having children yourself, how rough it can be for first-time parents. And for some reason, I thought I couldn't hold it in anymore. And on the worst night with the baby possible, I thought it was a good time to tell her that I didn't think that the Bible taught that Jesus was God anymore. (laughs) (laughs) How did she react to that? Oh, she said, you need some help. You know, I was crazy and I don't blame her. I've since since gotten much better at talking about this. Time and study will do that to you. And my wife, I'm happy to say through her own studies, is now 100% on board. But it came time to speak to my parents. Now, remember, they were, they were both and still are avid Bible students and teachers, some of the best I've ever met. And so I knew this would be uh, interesting. And that... <laughs> That first dinner table conversation was almost, I think it almost clocked in at 10 hours long. No. Yes, no 10 kidding. 10 hours of going at a biblical conversation? That's Yeah, that's the way we roll here in the Chandler family. So, wow. <laughs> I put together some notes. I handed them over. At first, I was called a heretic, of course. I was in trouble and all of that. I didn't think that I'd gotten very far at the end of that 10 hours. But, you know, Sean, all (laughs) God needs us to do is to plant the seed, right? Right. And it's really not even a seed. I don't really think that's even the best way to talk about that because so many of us have already had doubts or serious unanswered questions about the doctrine of the Trinity for years. We just needed to be shown that other 
sound-minded, incredible people have run into the same brick walls and that there are other people who are willing to explore the Bible for resolution. They're willing to look at a biblical alternative and it's okay. You know, they aren't being struck by lightning. They haven't lost their minds. They're just trying to take their own God-given mind seriously. So over the course of maybe a year and a half, two years, my parents came around and so before we know it, you know, we've shared with a bunch of friends and here we are, this growing brood of Unitarian converts. <laughs> we met some people and we eventually formed a small uh, church fellowship. So I began to uh, lead that group, I believe around 2014 or so. And uh, we now meet for fellowships on the weekend. So uh, what started off you know, as kind of a lone wolf affair, it grew into a, a really great thing. And now we have this wonderful setting. It's got great grassroots energy here, as I call it. And there's this real uh, passion for the gospel. It's been very encouraging and very exciting in my own world here uh, in Texas. And, and I'll say this, when you get a taste of the truth, the typical four-walled church service with its sound systems and its laser lights and, you know, here in Houston, we know about megachurches, so I have a lot of experience with Wait, that. Wait, don't you have the megachurch in Houston? We do, uh, Mount Lakewood. <laughs> and it, it's got uh, fog and lightning that comes from the top of it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but suddenly, when you get a taste of the truth, and you're surrounded with a rock-solid group of Christ followers who are hungry, who are desperate for the truth of the Bible— I mean, you you just realize that you wouldn't trade that for anything. Yeah. So let me ask you this. As you've grown and developed with this small group of folks in the Houston area, where do you see the biblical Unitarian movement going in the future? Well, Sean, I think that we really are on the front lines of a new information war. The rise of the Internet has changed everything, not just theology, of course. We're seeing right now in the news every single day how quickly information can be spread over the Internet. And I really think there has been an active suppression of so much of the biblical data and the historical information. You know, years ago, the Catholic establishment kept Bibles from even being translated in our own languages. And over the centuries, there's been this sort of progressive retraction of that veil over the truth. I mean, now for the first time, we can pull out a little device from our pockets when our pastor says something, and we can point to that app and say, now, wait a second. You know, the spread of information about the Bible, about church history, about all that controversy that you described is now at a rate that surely is unprecedented in human history. I'm, I'm sure you've looked at some of this information. I know you've done a lot of work on the early protesters, on the reformers. But, you know, it was only a couple of years after Luther translated the Bible into German that communities started popping up denying the doctrine of the Trinity. Once people have the biblical and historical information at their disposal, and once they feel like they're in a place where they can freely explore it, it's not uncommon that they begin to see through all of this rather quickly. And that's what we need to do, Sean. That's what you're doing here every week. You're making that information available. So we need we need more sites and books and infographics to spread the message that there is a sound, biblical, rationally healthy alternative to some of these 
perplexing dogmas uh, and creeds that Christians have been shackled to for, for so very long. I, you know, I had never heard of a biblical Unitarian, but through the internet, I very easily learned what that was almost immediately once I started to ask some serious questions online. And I can't help but think that that is happening all over the world right now. Yeah. How many people are sitting in their pews and when they hear their pastor say that God died on the cross, how many, how many devoted Christians aren't sitting there scratching their heads or wondering if they're all alone? And now uh, it's very easy to search for truth in the privacy of one's own home, uh, through the books, through the internet. I really think we're on the verge of something. There's a sort of revolution brewing that I think the establishment isn't ready for, something that they'll hope will go away, something they thought they dealt with a long time ago. But it, it's not going away. It's not settled. The Trinity theory was never settled. And if, if we look at church history, as, as I know you have, Sean, we'll see that it was just covered over and suddenly made a matter of life or death. Right. Yeah, it, it was settled, I would say. <laughs> but it was not settled in a godly or rational manner. It was settled by an emperor stepping in saying, look, this is what we're going to believe and if you don't agree with it, you can't have a church in any city. It's illegal for you to have a church in the city. So, you, so now those who don't accept the official doctrine of the Trinity have to be out in the country only. And then progressively, as time goes on, now they have to be out of the Roman Empire mm-hmm. if they want to meet for worship and not agree with the Trinity. And so, yeah, the issue was settled, but it was settled with the strong arm of the government intervening with the power of the army behind it to enforce this particular formulation. And I don't know. I mean, it's just, to me, I have so much hope hearing your story, but also some despair as well, because there are really two issues that came to mind when you were talking there. One is you're praising the information age, but at the same time, just to use this past election cycle as an example, misinformation abounds. And so how, how do you deal with access to information? Well, you just flood you flood the, the marketplace of ideas with misinformation all over the place. Sure. And then the, the other is that you have this whole idea of reputation where mm-hmm. if you don't accept, and, and they, they've worked steadfastly at this, they the not just the Roman Catholics, but the evangelicals, They've published books on it, and their apologists often say this, that if you don't accept the doctrine of the Trinity, you're not a Christian. If you don't accept the doctrine of the Trinity, you're in a cult. If you don't believe Jesus is God, then you are just one of these wackos, and they'll just lump you in with the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. There's this smear campaign, guilty by association, and people don't even let the thought into their heads, which is why you're so interesting, because first of all, a Mormon is the one who converted you. Well, I mean, that's overstating it a bit, but got you (laughs) thinking about, I mean, what are the chances of that? I think it's more of God can speak through anything, right? If he can can speak to Balaam through a donkey, then he can talk to me about Unitarianism through a Mormon. (laughs) Right, right. That's amazing. I want to see this thing break out into the public sphere where people see it as an option. And I don't honestly see that right now unless somebody searches for something related to the topic. That's really where we have our best shot. We've got literally at this point thousands of YouTube videos between 
Dan Gill's work, Anthony Buzzard's work, and John Shaneheit, and just thousands of these videos out there on different biblical subjects, you know, probably hundreds on, on something related to this subject. Mm-hmm. But if somebody's not searching for it, they're not going to find it. And we have several large websites. And you, you now have your own website, right? That's right. I do. I have, I have a couple of them. <laughs> well, tell me about your websites. So I uh, co-founded a, a site with a friend called thegodofjesus.com. It's a new uh, growing site with articles and videos, links, book recommendations, different ways to connect. It's a great resource for people who are beginning to look into some of the matters that we've discussed today. And praise God, like you said, there are so many great resources out there. And uh, like Restoration Fellowship, your site, Restitutio, Dr. Dale Tuggy's Trinity's page, um, 21st Century Online. There's so many books and articles and videos coming out. It's, it's hard to keep track. But I think that that's the spirit, the pace that we need to have in this very, uh, very important discussion. We have to keep the information rolling, keep it out there. You know, Christianity is becoming a little unfashionable in our day and age. We're entering into some uncharted territory before, maybe when our grandparents were around. Everybody was Christian, and that's what you would that's what you would claim if you wanted to, you know, have a strong place in society. But Christianity is so becoming so associated with bigotry and and closed mindedness and all this. It's it's not as beneficial to claim Christianity now. So there is an opportunity for for a real shakeup. I mean, if you look in Europe, the church population has just dwindled in, into almost nothing. And on the one hand, we say, oh, isn't that terrible? But on the other hand, there's an opportunity because it's a a sort of demolition. And there's an opportunity for rebuilding something great. So there are going to be people out there, dissatisfied evangelicals, disenfranchised Jehovah's Witnesses, who are going to be looking for something. And and we've got to be ready for them. And so that's what my website, thegodofjesus.com, is set up to do is just to be one of those uh, portals for people stepping off the plane, you know, someone holding a, a sign up with their name on it. I have another website, a blog called the Buried Deep Blog. It's a new blog, but there I, I write about a new article every month or so on a variety of topics related to church history. Um, there may be a bit more there on some of my more esoteric interests like Christian Gnosticism and, and Hermeticism and all that. Yeah, I just I just pulled it up, and the lead article is Plotinus Among the Gnostics. There are a couple of vocab words right there. <laughs> and then it goes on, the Neoplatonic Trinity in the late 3rd century. So this buried deep is definitely, if you're digging deeper into these ideas and you really want to get to the bottom of what's going on historically, huh? Right, right. And, you know, there's a place for all of that. And I'm, I'm fascinated with church history. I, I love the history of, of philosophy. And perhaps we can get into some of those things. But really, what we're talking about here, Sean, is a very simple and basic story. It's something that even a child can understand. You, don't, you think you don't have time to sit down and sift through a hundred books of, of, of church history? Okay, the truth is very, very simple. I think it has to be. It's something even a child needs to be able to understand. And it's this very simple story that, that ultimately changed my life. And I can give you one example. When I was kind of coming to, when my studies were coming to a head with all this 
church history and figuring out who the first Trinitarians were, I really was at this very interesting place. I was very vulnerable and just praying for God to just come in and, and just show me what the truth is to kind of uh, give the death blow. And so much of my Christianity had been built on the idea of the dying God, the story that God himself had come down and died for our sins, right? That's such a powerful story for so many. And it's, and it's a great story. Like I said, my early Christian years were, were just motivated by that, by the God-man Jesus and, and his death for me on the cross. That's what people have reduced the entire gospel down to. So would you and, say that emotionally that story had an incredible significance in your own heart? As a Christian, absolutely, and and we're trained that our salvation is tied into that story, right? If if Jesus wasn't God, right. then when He died, that didn't pay for your sins. So on on a great many levels, that idea of the God who gave Himself for you is just so very powerful, and it was for me. But what I discovered at the end of all of this is that the Bible actually tells a greater story. It's a different story with an even greater impact for us. And I found it paralleled in the story of the biblical Abraham. I was always amazed at Abraham. I thought, wow, to sacrifice my own son, that's not something I could do. All this really hit me at the at the birth of my own son, like I was saying. Oh, right, yeah. And I was standing over his crib one night, Sean, and I, and I looked down and I had this kind of epiphany. I thought, wow, he's not me. <laughs> I thought, I'm not my own son. <laughs> and I know that sounds simple, but as an evangelical Trinitarian, I had evidently had somewhat of a hard time with that distinction for so long. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, I could sacrifice myself. If I had to, I could do that. But I could never, never sacrifice my own son. Someone who was so good and only did what I told him to do, I could never sacrifice him for people who hated us. No way. No way. And that is the love of God. The New Testament teaches that this is the love of God. This is the love he had for us, that he would give his own son. For God so loved the world that he gave himself? No, it's, it's that he gave his son. And there was something else, something very important that I think the story of the dying God that motivates so much of evangelicalism was leaving out. And that's that there was a real participation there is a, a willing participation of the son, Jesus. Just like Isaac willingly took the wood on his shoulder, so did Jesus. He said, yes, daddy, right? God had said, Jesus, I think that the world and all of the people in it, I think they're worth it. And Jesus said, I agree with you. Let's partner together. Let's do this. And ultimately, I think that we miss out on just how special this is. The gospel narrative is a picture for us of what happens when God and a man work together. As we hear Anthony Buzzard say, the Bible is the story of God and man, not God and God. And I think we lose out on the simplicity, on the power of the story when we transform God into a divine essence and we transform the, the real humanity of Jesus into a timeless metaphysical abstraction like the doctrine of the Trinity ultimately does. This message is not just about church history and which philosopher said this and which idea came first. It's not, it's not just about all that. All that is very important. But there is a real 
radical truth, a truth that makes you understand and appreciate God as our Father and appreciate Jesus as our brother, as his human son, and a story, I think, that ultimately points the finger back at you. It says, Jesus did all of this. He partnered together with God. Now it's your turn. Wow. That's such a great point and very moving and so biblical because, (laughs) yeah, I mean, the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I have sons. In fact, all I have is sons. I I can't seem to have a daughter, (laughs) (laughs) at least not yet. I can't even imagine, like you said, I can't even imagine giving up one of those sons. And certainly, you look at Jesus, he's the only one that gets it right all the time. Everyone else falls, stumbles, gives into temptation. Jesus feels every temptation to its absolute peak mm-hmm. and stays strong under it. Every time, I'm sure that God looks down and sees Jesus doing this throughout his earthly life and his ministry, it must have brought such joy to his heart. And then in the end, Jesus is quivering, he's sweating, he's in agony, and he's saying to his Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And of course, there isn't another way, and so he dutifully and voluntarily goes through with it. But just the love of the Father, I mean, I, there is such a, a beauty there that you miss out when you reconfigure the crucifixion and the death of a human being to be the shucking off of an exterior husk that isn't really related to the actual person who continued to live during that three-day period anyhow. That's right. So, I mean, we have a real human death. You have a a father who is giving everything he could. I, I, I always like to say God would die for us if he could. I believe that, but he's immortal. <laughs> he can't die. First Timothy six sixteen and one seventeen says that God's immortal. Like immortal means you can't die. So you could shoot right. him with a gun, he doesn't die. You can hit him with a nuclear bomb. You could hit him with a laser. He's not gonna die. Okay. That's so right. what can he give? He gives everything that he possibly can give, his only begotten son, the only one who always did the right thing and who did it with the right heart and did it in the right way, with compassion and truth and grace and justice. So Yeah, I think this is a message that needs to get out there, and I'm glad that I got to meet you and hear a little bit about your story. We'll bring you on next time, and we'll hear about your book, The God of Jesus in Light of Christian Dogma. But for today, thank you so much, Keegan Chandler, for taking the time out to talk with me. Thank you, Sean. had a great time. Next week, we'll hear about Keegan Chandler's new book, The God of Jesus, and really dig deeper into some of the insights that he uncovered along the way. But for now, I just wanted to read out a couple of comments we've received. The first is from Brian, who said on Offscript episode 16, Christians Discussing Politics, This was more than a podcast on the 2016 presidential election. This was a great podcast on how we should live our lives as followers of Messiah every day. While none of us are perfect, there's no room for slander in the speech of a believer as far as I'm concerned. God bless, and thanks again, guys, for the enjoyable podcast from a fellow apolitical. (laughs) Thanks, Brian, for writing in. That episode was certainly a little uncomfortable to 
put out because I know how passionate people are about their various political positions and about voting and about defending their candidate or assassinating the character of the opposing candidate. But we felt, Dan Fitzsimmons, Rose Ryder, and I felt that it was an important subject to address. This was before the decision was settled, and it seems that people on both sides have since then continued to engage politically, especially on social media, but also in riots. And the question, once again, for us as Christians is, how do we carry ourselves? What should our response be? Whether you liked Donald Trump or were a never-Trump person doesn't really matter at this point. What matters is that he is the lawfully elected president, and from a scriptural perspective, from 1 Peter chapter 2, we are mandated to honor him and all government officials. That doesn't mean we obey what they say if it contradicts what God says. We have clear precedent from that, from Jesus, from Peter, from plenty of other examples in the Bible. But we shouldn't make fun of or ridicule or in any way slander the president. That doesn't mean that we should, on the other hand, be naive or act like some of the things he's done he hasn't done. The Bible doesn't say you have to agree with your government leaders. It doesn't say you have to say their policies are good. And in America, one of the great things is that you can criticize the policies and actions of the government without getting executed or sent off into a gulag. So I think even as the days go on, this this topic is very much alive and relevant. And I encourage you, if you haven't already listened to it, check out Offscript 16, Christians Discussing Politics. On the same lines, Jen wrote in and said, I thought you all handled this topic very well with great respect for people as God sees them. Thank you. I appreciate those words, Jen, and that's really a key element of how we are called to live as Christians. For example, in 1 Peter 3.15, it says we are to defend ourselves, our beliefs, give a reason, that is, for the hope that is in us, but with gentleness and respect. And so we want to pursue truth, we want to explain ourselves, but do it in in a way that is respectful. And it doesn't matter to me whether that is a popular or expedient means for achieving an end in our society today. What matters to me is whether or not I'm being faithful to what the Scripture teaches and to what God says. If you want to add your voice to the conversation, please visit restitutio.org and leave a comment. And if it's not too much trouble, please review us on iTunes. That really helps people to find the show, and which will help others to... Love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.